Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah. We are in Nehemiah chapter 10 today, still walking through our study together through our series that we have titled Rebuild. And today, this morning, we have come to a season of commitment. And so today's sermon title is just simply the word commit itself. Now, I tell you, I uh, imagine for a moment during worship as I was thinking through the text and as we were worshiping together, I thought to myself, I wonder if this is where the Israelites were at this point in Nehemiah 10, because you see they had gone through so much already, and now they've come to a point in Nehemiah 10 where they're ready to commit back to God. And so they are now acknowledging that they are free in God, that they now have a home that has been established, and they have been faithfully leaning and trusting upon the very arms of God with everything that has happened. So I could almost see us in this moment proclaiming and praising God as we worshiped in song this morning, almost the same way we probably would have seen uh, the Israelite nation do so many years ago. So anyway, I am praising God for that, and I'm thankful for uh, the leadership of our praise team and the work that they did this morning in leading us in worship, and especially thankful for Adam and Alex and, and Dylan who faithfully led us as well. So uh, to God be the glory for that. So here we are in Nehemiah chapter 10, back in our rebuild. We clearly see that the Israelites have gathered again. They have grieved their sin already, and now they've come to a point where they are prepared to reconnect with God or commit themselves back to God, if you will. And so with that being said this morning, I want to ask you this question uh, which is this, have you ever given much thought to what we give ourselves to? You see, we as a society generally tend to commit to things that we have a genuine interest in or something that we simply desire to be a part of. I remember uh, being a team chaplain for a football team and our head coach always told the seniors at the beginning of every season, uh, he had this lengthy speech that he gave them about signing their letter of intent to determine where they were going to go on to play college football. And so for many of our kids, uh, they went on to get full scholarships to Division I schools. Several of them got scholarships to Division II schools, Division Three, on and on and on. But the message our coach had for the players was always the same, and it was this. He would sit down and tell the players that when you commit to a school, you are giving 100% of who you are to that school. You are giving 100% of who you are to that team. You are giving 100% of yourself to the rules of that place. You're giving 100% of who you are to that very institution. So when you make your decision, stick with the decision you've made. Commit to the school that you have chosen. Now, does this sound like us when we commit? In a time where we see so many people, uh, thanks to the modern technology and the wonderful world that is social media, when we see a time where so many people become quick to change their views, quick to change their values, do we still even commit to anything at all? Better yet, as believers ourselves, when we think about our own lives, do we have a cause to which we can give everything to? You see, in Nehemiah chapter 10, we see Nehemiah, along with the returned exiles, commit themselves to the word of God and also to the people of God, which is one another. So in other words, what we're going to see here is the people 
commit themselves to make a covenant in order to keep an already existing covenant that they have with God. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and if you're able, I would invite you to stand now as we read the Word of God. Now this is Nehemiah chapter 10. We will begin reading in verse 28. Nehemiah writes, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt." We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of our fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. May we pray together. Father God, we come before you right now, gathered in your house, gathered in this place, prepared to worship you. And so, Father, I pray in these next few moments as we worship you through the study of your word, Prepare our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears for your truth. And God, may you and you alone be glorified. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your commands. 
We thank you for the call that you've placed upon our lives to commit to you. And Father, I pray that that would be our heart's cry today, that we would commit to you, the one true living God. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us, for delighting in us. And God, today, may you be glorified. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, here we see that the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem. We also see that they have now repented of their sin, both individually and corporately. And now they have returned together to make a covenant to keep the old covenant that God had already given to them. Now, this covenant they were making uh, is a firm commitment being made to walk in the ways of God, but also to walk according to the word of God. So when we get to this covenant in Nehemiah chapter 10, it comes with both an oath and a curse if the covenant is broken. And so the people break this covenant down into three commitments being made to God. But before we get into that, I know several of you are wondering, why on earth did we skip verses 1 through 27? Now, if you've been reading along with us in Nehemiah, you might have been looking forward to this morning and hearing your pastor butcher as many Hebrew names as possible, because that's all that you see in verses 1 through 27. It is simply a list of names, starting with Nehemiah, and then the Levites, and then the rest of the people are mentioned. Now, this list that we see gives us a firm idea about who the people of God are and who are not considered amongst the people of God. It is a list of names, but it is a significant list of names because it is showing us the importance of belonging to the people of God. In other words, what Nehemiah is doing here is he is literally establishing church membership. He is saying that membership to a local body is important. Now, Nehemiah is clearly speaking of an entire nation here, which is important as opposed to a singular church. However, those who returned to Jerusalem were counted amongst the body of believers. They were known and they were able to be identified as a part of the family of God and those who belong. So you see, that in essence is what church membership is. It is knowing. It is being a part of the family of God. You see, church membership should be a commitment we willingly, faithfully, and obediently make. Now, we, uh, shameless plug for tonight at 6 o'clock, we are actually going to go back and look at the 27 names listed in Nehemiah chapter 10. So, if you still have a hankering to hear your pastor spout out Hebrew names, then let me invite you back tonight at 6 p.m. I'm going to give it a go, and we're going to see what happens. Okay, so come back for that. Shameless plug. But in the meantime, let's deal with the oath being made in verses 28 through 39. You see, this passage, excuse me, is a representation 
of God's mercy. First, we see the list of names. And then in verse 28, we see it say, And all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands. Now, this is important to include that phrase, all of the people who separated themselves from the people of the lands, because what that's telling us is that there are non-Jews, there are non-Israelites within this mix. You see, the people realized that the word of God was for everyone. They were saying to anyone at this time, whoever wants to separate themselves from the sin of the land and devote themselves to the word of God, the people are saying to them, you have a place with us and we welcome you here. You see, we see a similar statement being made in Ezra chapter 6, verse 21. And so here's the question for us today. When people come here, When people come into this place, do we welcome them? When we have guests sitting among us, do we treat our guests as people who have a place with us? Because you see, here's the reality. We have Jesus Christ. We sit under a new covenant. We have a great gift to share with everyone. And so do we welcome people in and willingly, faithfully, obediently share that gift with them? As we will see, the Israelites not only welcomed outsiders who were prepared to believe and put their faith and trust in God and in the very word of God, but we also see that this passage focused on the very word itself. In fact, in verse 28, we read that we are called to obey the law. In verse 29, we see that we are called to follow the law and carefully obey all the commands. In verse 34, we see that we are to follow what is written in the law. And then in verse 36, we see that we are to do all as prescribed by the law. In other words, the people realize that they have been mercifully redeemed from exile and therefore the people voluntarily take a covenant. They make a commitment with God to commit themselves to the very law of God and the very word of God. So we see and get into verse 28 and 29. We see the people make an oath and they promise to obey. If they don't, they realize that there will be a curse or there will be consequences for their disobedience. And so they learn that the covenant they are taking on is the same one that we see the Israelites make with Moses back in Mount Sinai. They are basically committing themselves back to the original commandments, to all the rules, to all the laws, to all the statutes that have been given to them by Moses at Sinai. Now, this is actually what we call foreshadowing. And here's why. Because we see the people commit themselves back to a covenant that they have already broken. We see the people commit themselves to a covenant that not only have they already broken, they've already broken multiple times by this point. And so now, after repenting of their sin, after celebrating the the Feast of Booths, and now all of a sudden coming back to the law of God, to the word of God, they do their best to recommit themselves back to this old existing covenant. And then what's going to happen, spoiler alert, is at the end of Nehemiah, we're going to find that the people are going to break the covenant again. And so in Nehemiah, through the history of the first five books of the Bible, 
through their passion for knowing the word, for their desire to be separate and set apart for the glory of God, knowing who it was that led them out of exile, the people themselves do their best and try to recommit themselves to a covenant that even they have to realize they cannot commit. And ultimately, that's what we see happen as we get to the end of Nehemiah. But before we get into that, let's look at the statements with which the Israelites committed themselves to. There are three statements that we see of commitment here in Nehemiah. The first one is this. According to verse 30, they say this, that there will be no intermarriage. There will be no intermarriage. Now think about this. I don't know if if maybe as you're reading verse 30 or you read or heard verse 30 just a moment ago, you probably thought to yourself, well, man, that's kind of an odd way to start a covenant. I mean, when I'm thinking of a covenant, I'm thinking more like the Ten Commandments. I'm thinking, thinking, uh, let's start with God. Let's start with praising and and worshiping God. Let's start with, with what the main thing is. Well, no, here are the Israelites. They start with a covenant of marriage. Now, some people will look at this and say, wait a minute. If you're talking about intermarriage, isn't that a bit elitist? Um, Isn't that a bit racist almost in what we're saying? Well, the reality is no. That's not at all what the Israelites are saying. They're not saying this has anything to do with racism. They're saying that this has nothing to do with elitism or thinking that they're better than other people. Rather, what they are doing is they are committing themselves to entering into a covenant relationship with people who are like-minded. Now think about this for a moment. As believers, we too, when it comes to marriage, we should seek to be married to like-minded people. Why? Because here's the reality of marriage. Marriage is hard. It's not easy. It's a challenge being married. I'm not even going to look at my wife right now because she's going amen. I see Brother Don raising a fist in the sky. because Not because he understands it's hard, because he understands how long Miss Charlotte's had to put up with him. We understand that. Just recently, several weeks ago, we celebrated the 50th wedding anniversary of Robert and Marilyn Lucas. And thanks be to God for couples who have that longevity. But I am confident of this. If we were to bring Miss Marilyn up here, and I'm not going to put her on the spot, if I were to ask her this question, has it always been roses with you and Mr. Robert, or have there been moments of challenges, I am quite confident she would begin to easily speak of the challenges that she has faced with Robert Lucas. Why? Because every woman knows this fact. When you marry a man, you are marrying a fixer-upper. That's the truth. Marriage is hard. It is tough. It is challenging. It is one of those moments where you take two independent people, two people who've been able to do what they want, when they want, how they want, according to the grace, will, and mercy of God, and then you smash them together in one place. It's crazy to think about. But here's the reality. When you look at marriage and you see as believers in Christ the challenges that come with marriage, imagine what it must be like when two people are married who are unequally yoked. Imagine what it's like when one spouse is a follower of God and the other one couldn't be further from God if you asked. The challenges that come with that. 
In fact, I'm convinced that it probably becomes more challenging at that point. And so you see, the Israelites here, they were concerned about the spiritual growth of every person walking amongst them. They said to themselves, according to this commitment, that the only way we can grow in our faith is to be around like-minded people in our relationships, in our worship, and within our marriages. Now, they were not negating the fact that there were people who needed to hear the good news of God. They did not negate the fact that they were unwilling to welcome people in to the house of God. They were willing to let them in, but they understood in order to be able to grow, you have have to surround yourself with people who are willing to challenge you and who are willing to grow with you. In fact, the Israelites firmly believed in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says that the followers of God should train up their children in the very word of God. Because you see, if the word of God is lived in the home, then it's likely that our children are more likely to follow the word of God as well. You see, it's interesting. Many moons ago, I found myself at a church as a student pastor, and they were some of the glorious years of my life. There's nothing greater than being a student pastor, in my opinion. It's one of the hardest yet most humbling works any person can desire to be called to. In fact, I've often said to myself, looking at student pastors today, I pray for them. I pray for our very own family pastor, uh, Pastor Ricky and his wife PJ and their family and the people that minister with them. I pray for them on a daily basis because I understand the challenges that come with being a family pastor. I understand lock-ins. I understand pizza parties. Um, I understand... uh, uh, skate nights. I also understand those events that you had where you would have a pizza eating contest and after eating 28 slices of pizza and realizing you're finishing third, jumping on a trampoline is a very bad idea. I have been there. But there was one moment that stuck out to me more than any other. You see, like our very own family pastor and his, his own family and his leaders, they believe in teaching the word of God. They believe in pointing our young people in a direction that catapults them toward a closer walk with Jesus Christ. And so they faithfully teach, they faithfully administer the word, they faithfully lead our students. And I had those moments as well. But the one moment that stood out to me was when a student came to me and asked me this question. He said, Johnny, I understand what it is you're trying to teach us. I understand your desire for us to grow in the word. I understand your heart and desire to see us be passionate about the word of God. But here's my question for you. Why should I follow Christ and his word if I don't see him modeled by my own parents in my own home? You see, that convicted me on so many levels. It convicted me as a, as a pastor that we've got to do a better job of engaging our adults and engaging our parents with the word of God. But at the same time, as a new parent at the time, just had our first child. Actually, I think we'd had our second child by that point. I was convicted that God had given me the high calling of being a father. And I was only a steward of the time that I had with my children. And I'm still simply a steward of their time. But as long as they are in my house and under my roof, then I will do everything in my power to see them grow in their faith and understanding of who God is. You see, that is the calling placed upon all of us when it comes to our children. You see, the Israelites not only believed in the 
the union relationship of marriage and the need to spiritually bring up their children in a God-honoring home. They also believed that total union was impossible without agreement on who God is. In other words, in a marriage and in raising a family, we need to know what it means to know God, what it means to worship God. And so as believers, we do know this, but how do we communicate that with our spouse who may not know Christ? You see, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks of marriage as the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And so in our marriages, they should reflect the same relationship that God has with his church and that God has with his people. And so here's the question for us married folks today. Does our marriages or do our marriages reflect the marriage between God and the church? Does it reflect the relationship between Christ and his church? Do our children see Jesus Christ being modeled in our homes? Do our marriages reflect the model of Jesus Christ and his love and sacrifice for the church? You see, when the Israelites made this commitment... They did not intend for this to be a harsh rule. That was not the goal. Rather, the goal was for the people of God to devote themselves to the Lord and to commit themselves to living in such a way that the generations to come would come to know God. So you see, how has our lives and relationships reflected Christ glorified to the world around us? Better yet, when it comes to our children, do they see Jesus in us, in our grandchildren? Do they see Jesus in us as adults with children on this campus, whether they are our children or our grandchildren or our adopted children? Are we doing everything we can to see to the spiritual upbringing of the next generation? Because here's the truth. We have a biblical obligation to committing our lives to the upbringing of the next generation generation. And so have we honored that commitment? Our marriages should reflect the union we have with Christ. If you are single in the room, then you should grow yourself and seek someone who shares the same desire that you have to make much of Jesus Christ in every area of your life. As widows, My prayer is that you were able to look back upon your marriage. That you were able to celebrate the life that you had together. And that now you would take on the mantle of instructing the next generations of spouses on what a biblical marriage should look like. Now, if you find yourself in a marriage that is currently unequally yoked, this is not a get-out-why-you-can card. Rather, recognize that you have an opportunity to be Jesus Christ for someone in your life who desperately needs Jesus Christ. As you pray and you begin to pray for God to open the door for you to be able to share the gospel, look no further than your spouse who needs Jesus. For those who are equally yoked, Look to encourage, to edify, and to point your spouses back to the hope and the mercy and the grace that can be found in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because every day, His mercies are made new.
So the first commitment we see is that there will be no intermarriage. The second commitment we see is this. In verse 31, the people commit to observe the Sabbath. Now, this commitment has several parts. We see a weekly Sabbath, there's a sabbatical year, and then there's a cancellation of debts. Now, notice how they don't simply observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, which is what we hear of in the commandments. Rather, they take it one step further by saying this, we will not conduct any business whatsoever on the Sabbath. We will not buy goods. We will not sell goods. We will not do any type of work on the Sabbath. They treated the Sabbath as evidence of faith and as a declaration of trust in the provision of God. You see, the Sabbath rest was designed for us to simply place our faith and trust and hope in God. In fact, we learn from the Israelites that the Sabbath rest, this rest, would be better than being productive or working even. This was a sign of trusting God with that one day. And so for the question for us today is this, what day in our week do we simply pause and reflect on the wonder that is Jesus Christ? What day do we stop for a moment and trust that He alone is enough for that day and that He is greater than our work, He is greater than all of our energy spent, He is greater than all of our productivity, that He alone is enough. Next we see the Israelites move not only from the Sabbath rest, but we see them move to the sabbatical year. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you have read verse 31 and thought, man, it would be nice to, work in, to walk into my office on Monday morning and say, by the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to the word of God, I am taking this year off. I can't imagine that going over very well. I can't imagine walking into the next deacons meeting and announcing that to our deacons. I can't imagine that would go over well at all. Yet what we see here with the Israelites is this sabbatical year was another evidence of faith. They trusted God to provide for them in that year. It was all about pointing back to God and placing your entire faith and trust in Him. But now here's the key. In order to be able to take off a year, they not only had to trust God with that specific year, but they had to trust God that He would provide enough for them the year year before. And then they also had to trust God that he would not only provide for them, but then sustain them for the year after. So what we see the Israelites doing is they are committing three years back to simply trusting God. In other words, they were living out Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6, which says, trust in the Lord and not in your own understanding. Know God in all his ways. Can you imagine taking that step of faith with God? Could you imagine trusting God for a full year? And then the final part of this commitment we see is that they forgive the debts of those who owed them. In other words, to forgive a debt was to not only be a sign of grace upon a person's life, but also a sign of belief that it is God who will provide and it is God who will sustain. Now here comes the question. How on earth does this apply to us today? Well, Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 14, verse 5 and 6, that we must be fully convinced 
in our minds. In other words, we have a choice. We can either choose to honor the Sabbath today, we can choose to honor the Sabbath rest, or because of the grace and mercy found in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can trust that it was Jesus Christ who fulfilled the Mosaic Law, and therefore the Sabbath rest now points to the rest that can be found in Jesus Christ. Either way, the point of the Sabbath is to rest if needed. The point of the Sabbath is to trust in God who has provided all things. But let's not miss the main point of the Sabbath, which is we are to trust in Jesus Christ. Not our own work, not by our own doing, but trust in Christ and Christ alone. Because He is the one that gives the work. He is the one that calls. He is the one that has laid out the plan for our lives. He alone is sovereign. He is the one who has given us clarity, and it is Christ alone who will give us rest. As long as we find rest in Him. You see, when life gets tense, when jobs get frustrating, where do we turn to? Scripture clearly teaches there is but one we need to turn to, and his name is Jesus. And in him we will find our rest. Commitment number three. So we've seen them commit to no intermarriage. We've seen the Israelites commit to the Sabbath. And now thirdly and finally, we see the Israelites commit to supporting the local church, according to verse 32 and verse 39. Now notice what's happening here. Every statement here in verse 32 through 39 references the house of God. Each verse communicates the people's commitment to support the work of the ministry of the church. Now, this commitment focuses on everything that pertains to the worship of God. And the whole point of this commitment, like the others, was that, uh, was that these commitments would allow the people to enjoy the very presence of God. And so we need to take it upon ourselves to enjoy the good pleasure of God because it is God who delights in us. And the way we enjoy the good pleasure of God is by coming together to follow the will and the commands of God. You see, the church, even today, should always be about the Lord. The church today should always be about the Word of God. The church today is a reflection of the victory that is found in Jesus Christ. You see, the church today, we are the temple. We are the body of Christ. We are called to be committed and to support the local church. In fact, we see this in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6, 1 Timothy 5, and again in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. As a church, as people within the church. We are called to be committed to the temple, which is to be committed to the church. We are called to support the church with our hands, our feet, and our resources that God has given to us. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention in the bulletin or not, but you may pay attention to the bottom of the page where it talks about our weekly giving. Now, I want to brag on you for a moment. Because this past week, we met, for the first time in many, many months, we met our weekly needs for a second week of the month. 
Now, I don't know if you were paying attention the week before, but the week before that, we did something in this church that this church has not done in years. We have a weekly need of $7,000, and the church gave, and you gave over $10,000 in one week. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that had nothing to do with the preaching. I'd like to think it did. It did not. It had nothing to do with the worship. It had everything to do with the people of God being faithful according to the word of God and giving because of the glory of God and the mercy that is found in Christ. Thank you for your giving. But don't stop now. Because you see, this commitment that we are making, this is a called commitment that means we are faithfully committed to support the local church until God calls us home. We need you to continue to give. We need you to continue to give of your resources. We need you to continue to give of your time and of your talents. We still have needs in this church that are still not being met. We have children that need teachers. We have youth that need leaders. We have uh, ministries that are being neglected simply because we don't have the adults who have stepped up yet to step into those roles and faithfully lead and support the church. And so you see, here's our question according to verses 32 through 39. Do we, as a body of believers, support the ministry of the church? You see, we gather here for the Lord. That is the point of the church. That is the purpose of the church. It is about being with God, knowing God, and enjoying the presence of God, and praising and worshiping God because of the free gift that has been given to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't neglect the call to be involved in the local church, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. You see, the Israelites we're making some big commitments here. These same commitments we are also called to today. Now, again, these commitments were not made for the sake of legalism or to elevate ourselves. Rather, these commitments were made to make much of the Lord. You see, according to the first commitment, the Lord is the point of marriage. Marriage exists today to display the way God loves his people and the way Jesus Christ loves the church. It is the Lord who is the point of the Sabbath. In the Old Covenant, Israel rested in their labor to declare that God was their provider. Today, we rest from our work to take on the easy yoke of Jesus Christ and to proclaim that it is Christ alone who saves us, and in Christ alone we find our rest. You see, it is the Lord who is the point of temple worship. When we come to worship, it should only be about Him. When we come to worship, it should only be about knowing Him and understanding Him and enjoying Him. And here's the reality. As believers in Christ, we have good news. Because you see, being in Christ means that we have faith in the one who satisfied the wrath of God. He paid for our sin, and if we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we know him, then we are made right with God under the new covenant with Christ. You see, this commitment that the Israelites made, 
This had nothing to do with them. But it had everything to do about knowing God. And so you see, I want us as a church to simply know God, to delight in him, to welcome those who come into our midst and let them know that they are welcome here because here in this place, we live for the Lord. You know, it's true. We do live for the Lord. And if you say that you believe that, then it is time for us to commit again. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to to be here, to be in this place, and to worship you. Father, I thank you that through your word we see our call. Through your word we see our need to commit. Through your word we see the grace and the hope and the mercy that can be found in knowing you as Lord and Savior. And Father, through your word we recognize the call that you've placed upon our lives. And so Father, I pray that as a faith family, as a church, we would commit to the call that you've given to us. May we commit to you. May our lives, our relationships, our church, our services, everything that we do, may it all be a reflection of you and who you are. And through you, may you be glorified, Father. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to us. Draw us near to you. And in our actions, our words, our lives, even in our work, may you and you alone be glorified. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking delight in us. Father, may our hearts cry be for you. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.